Hi, and welcome to the Living Room Scripture Lessons. My name is Brad Constantine, and this set of lessons is from the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Although this is not an official recording of the Church, every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. There are several other Come Follow Me resources to help with your Gospel and Scripture study. These lessons tend to go a little deeper into the doctrine than most resources. Hopefully this resource will be different enough from the others that you'll come back each week. On the Living Room Scripture Lesson website is a digital version of the lessons, which has more material than can be mentioned in the podcast. You can download that PDF resource and use it as you like. As with other online resources, you can like, share, and subscribe to the podcasts. Again, welcome to this Come Follow Me resource. I hope you like it. Hi, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me podcast. My name is Brad Constantine. This particular discussion will be um, lesson number 39, and it covers the period September 30th through October 13th, so it spans two weeks, and it covers the entire book of uh, Ephesians, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. So this whole thing uh, is going to cover a couple of weeks because of general conference. We won't have church, our normal church meetings on Sunday, um, and so this is to cover the two-week period. So this one might be a little longer than normal just because of the, uh, the extent of it. So let me just give you a background, first of all, of Ephesians and what to expect in this particular chapter. First of all, the audience. Ephesus is located at an intersection of major trade routes and was a center of commerce trade. Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians was written to Gentile converts who were baptized members of the church, not people who were converts from Judaism and who had once lived under the law of Moses. The epistle is written in a general manner and lacks personal references, so it was probably sent to several congregations in the area. A historical background is that during Paul's third missionary journey, he spent about three years in Ephesus. This city was the site of a famous temple for the fertility goddess Diana. Paul's mission had been so successful at turning people from idol worship to the worship of Jesus Christ that the craftsmen of the city who sold pagan statues created an uproar about the threat to their trade. Paul probably wrote the book of Ephesians during his first Roman imprisonment, which was around A.D. 60 to 62. Some unique features of this book is that the book of Ephesians addresses vital gospel principles. Among these are foreordination, the, the latter-day restoration, and the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians also addresses the importance of prophets and apostles, church organization, and family relationships. Uh, much like today, the, the church members of Paul's day came from a variety of backgrounds. Paul reminded them of the united force, the uniting force of the gospel organization built on prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as the foundation. He counseled the members to be one in doctrine, righteousness, and family life. Also, Paul had labored about 30 years and was under house arrest. Nero was Caesar. Ephesians is one of the letters of imprisonment, probably around 61 to 62 AD somewhere in that frame. It is Paul's summation of the plan of salvation, encompassing the pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal estates of man. Some Bible scholars believe that Ephesians is the lost epistle to Laodicea, uh, which is referenced in Colossians 4.16. Um, according to um, the Institute Manual, it says, perhaps no other New Testament book contains so many doctrines that today are thought of as being distinctively Latter-day Saint, as does Ephesians. 
In it, we find reference to the doctrine of foreordination, the dispensation of the fullness of times, the importance of apostles and prophets in the church, the idea that there is only one true and united church, and the doctrine that the organization of the church is essential. In this letter, we find some of the most sublime teachings on the role of the family and the importance of proper family life that are found anywhere in the scriptures. So let's get into chapter one here. Um, Again, his greeting in the first few verses there, verse 2, grace and peace, again to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Uh, verse 4, according, to, according as he hath cho chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, so there already is about premortal life, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Elder Maxwell said, the foreseeing of those who will accept the gospel of mortality gladly and with alacrity is based upon their parallel responsiveness in the premortal world. The Lord, who was able to say to his disciples, cast the net on the right side of the ship, knew beforehand that there was a multitude of fishes there. If he knew beforehand the movements and whereabouts of fishes in the little sea of Tiberias, should it offend us that he knows beforehand which mortals will come into the gospel net? It does no violence even to our frail human logic to, to observe that there cannot be a grand plan of salvation for all mankind unless there is also a plan for each individual. The salvational sum will reflect all its parts. Once the believer acknowledges that the past, present, and future are before God simultaneously, even though we do not understand how, then the doctrine of foreordination may seem somewhat more clearly. So uh, he's mentioning here, Paul is talking about being chosen before the foundation of the world, that there was a premortal life in which we were chosen and foreordained to do certain things before we came here. Um, let's see, Bruce, no, who's this? Um, I'm not sure who this is from. This is a conference talk given in October of 1995. It says, In this great hall and listening this evening are thousands of future leaders of the church who have been called out of the world and chosen by the Lord before the foundation of the world, as described by, I think this is Neil A. Maxwell again, as described by Abraham. I believe the Lord has brought forth special spirits who were reserved from before the world as to the strong and valiant in this difficult time of the world's history. With all my heart, I urge you to be, the, be worthy and true. Verse 5, having predestinated, now the word should have been translated, or we would say foreordained, us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words, we were foreordained to be members of the church. You are of them that my Father hath given me, and none of them hath my Father given me that shall be lost. And that's from Doctrine and Covenants section 50. Elder McConkie said, it is clear that people do not all have the same talent for recognizing truth and believing the doctrines of salvation. Some heed the warning voice and believe the gospel, others do not. Some would give all they possess if they could but touch the hem of the garment of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Others find fault with every word that falls from prophetic lips. Some forsake lands and riches, friends and families, to gather with the true saints. Others choose to walk in the ways of the world and to deride the humble followers of Christ. Why? Why this difference in people? To this, to this problem, there is no easy answer. Every person stands alone in choosing his beliefs and electing the course he will pursue. But in the final sense, the answer stems back to premortality. We all lived as spirit, as spirit beings, as children of the Eternal Father, for an infinitely long period of time in the premortal existence. There we develop talents, gifts, and aptitudes that are there are capabilities, I'm sorry, there are capacities and abilities took, took form. There, by obedience to law, we were endowed with the power, in one degree or another, 
to believe the truth and follow the promptings of the Spirit. And the talent of greatest worth was that of spirituality, for it enables us to hearken to the Holy Spirit and accept that gospel which prepares us for eternal life. And so that Elder McConkie, that's out of the New Witness for the Articles of Faith. Down to verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his, ple his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. The Grand Richard said, isn't that something to think about when you hear that the Lord will reveal the mystery of his will, and that the mystery of his will has been revealed to his modern prophets of this day, and we have truths that no other church in, the, in this world knows anything about. We are the only church in the world that has a program to unite all that is in the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of God here on the earth, looking to the final winding up scenes when all the kingdoms of this world and the world to come will be under the supervision of our great king, the savior of the world. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So he's saying here again, the timing of when the gathering is going to take place, and that will be during the dispensation of the fullness of times. Um, Paul understood that his own dispensation would end in a, in a general apostasy. The fullness of the gospel would then be restored in a subsequent all-encompassing dispensation that would be the sum of all previous dispensations. Joseph Smith said, It is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. He's saying that all the, all the things that have transpired in previous dispensations will be had in our dispensation. Adam holds the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. That is, the disp dispensation of all the times have been and will be revealed through him from the beginning to Christ and from Christ to the end of all the dispensations that are to be revealed. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. So he's just uh, in talking here about uh, what Paul just said. Now the purpose in himself in the winding up scene of the last dispensation is that all things pertaining to that dispensation should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. And again, God purposed in himself that there should not be an eternal fullness until every dispensation should be fulfilled and gathered together in one, and that all things whatsoever that should be gathered together in one in those dispensations unto the same fullness and eternal glory should be in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he set the ordinances to be the same forever and ever, and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man or to send angels to reveal them. As President Nelson has been saying that the, the restoration of the gospel is still unfolding, and this the dispensation of the fullness of times, there are still some ordinances and still some things that were had in other dispensations that have not yet occurred in ours, and they must occur before the second coming. The dispensation of the fullness of times will bring to light the things that have been revealed in all former dispensations, also other things that have not been before revealed. While the dispensation in question began in 1820, the final glory of this dispensation has not yet been realized. The church's inauspicious beginning with only six members in a small log cabin will be con contrasted to a great, multi a great worldwide organization. The little stone cut without hands may be a large boulder now, but it has yet to become a great mountain, which fills the whole earth. We have not yet seen all that the Lord has in mind to restore.
for the restoration of the city of Enoch, the restoration of the continents in their original positions, and the purity of the Garden of Eden must all be restored. Also, we know that animal sacrifices will also have to occur again since they were part of a previous dispensation. Not the Law of Moses type of, of sacrifices, but those that Adam did before that. All of these will have to be restored again sometime before the Second Coming happens. Elder McConkie said it should be noted that Peter does not say that all things must be restored before Christ comes, but that the age, era, period, or times in the earth's history in which restoration is to take place must itself commence. That era did begin in the spring of 1820, but all things will not be revealed until after Christ comes. Joseph Smith said that the heavenly priesthood will unite with the earthly to bring about these great purposes. And whilst we are thus united in the one common cause to roll forth the kingdom of God, the heavenly priesthood are not idle spectators. The spirit of God will be showered down from above. It will dwell in our midst. The work of the Lord in these last days is one of vast magnitude and almost beyond the comprehension of mortals. Its glories are past descriptions and its grandeur unsurpassable. It has been the theme which has animated the bosom of prophets and righteous men from the creation of the world down through every succeeding generation to the present time. And it is truly the dispensation of the fullness of times when all things which are in Christ Jesus, whether in heaven or on the earth, shall be gathered together in him. And when all things shall be restored as spoken of by all the holy prophets since the world began, for in it will take place the glorious fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers, while the displays of the power of the Most High will be great, glorious, and sublime. Here then, beloved brethren, is a work to engage in worthy of archangels, a work which will cast into the shade the things which have heretofore been accomplished, a work which kings and prophets and righteous men in former ages have sought, expected, and earnestly desired to see, but died without the sight. And well will it be for those who shall aid in carrying into effect the mighty operations of Jehovah. That was written by Kent Jackson. Uh, we are the favored people that God has made choice of to bring about the Latter-day glory. It is left for us to see, participate in, and help to roll forward the great Latter-day glory. That's again from Ken Jackson. Uh, this is the dispensation of the fullness of times, and we see running into it as mighty streams rush into the ocean, all the former dispensations putting us in touch with them, putting them in touch with us, and we see that God has had but one great purpose in view from the beginning, and that has been the salvation of his children. And now has come the final day, the final dispensation, when truth and light and righteousness must flood the earth. And that's B.H. Roberts. Uh, and then in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of his of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, predestinated should be really foreordained, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Predestinated makes it sound like we don't really have a choice, but we have agency to choose. So predestination is not an accurate uh, word. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And here uh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of promise, and Joseph Smith had lots to say about that. Paul exhorts us to make our calling and election sure. This is the sealing power spoken of by Paul in other places, that he may be sealed up unto the day of redemption. This principle ought in its proper place to be taught, for God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve, and even the least saint may know, all things as fast as he is able to bear them. Uh, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Now the earnest, let me, we'll get into that here in a second. Let me just finish the verse. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance, meaning the Holy Ghost is the earnest of our inheritance or a down payment. No one has yet received their eternal inheritance because the earth has not yet been redeemed, uh, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possessing, uh, possession unto the praise of his glory. So the no one has yet received their final reward because we, we're still this this earth is still going through its mortal existence. So none of that will happen until after that occurs. George Q. Cannon said, God had given his spirit to the saints in that age in, in confirmation of the truth of the words of his servants and to assure them that the inheritance which had already been purchased by Jesus for all those who would obey the gospel should in due time be redeemed from the possession of those who wrongfully held it and, and bestowed it upon his faithful saints. That possession is the earth in its purified and celestialized condition, together with the gift of eternal life to enable us to enjoy it. And although neither the former nor latter-day saints have yet received that inheritance, for which both have been laboring, yet we, as well as they, have received the earnest or assurance of the Spirit that we shall yet possess it if we endure to the end. So the Holy Ghost has been given to us as a gift, as a down payment, to know that we will receive the rest of the inheritance later. Okay, um... The Lord's earnest money on us, his down payment, his indication to us that he will save us, is the Holy Spirit. We know that we are on course when we have the companionship of the Spirit. We know that our lives are approved of God when we have the companionship of the Spirit. We know that we are in Christ, in covenant, when we have the companionship of the Spirit. And we know, I suggest, that we are saved when we truly have the constant companionship of the Spirit. If we live in such a way that we can take the sacrament worthily, hold the and utilize the current temple recommend, maintain the gift and gifts of the Spirit, including the greatest gift of faith, hope, and charity, and in all things yield our hearts to God, then we are in the, t in the line of our duty. We are approved of the heavens, and if we are to die suddenly, we would go into paradise and eventually into the celestial kingdom. And that's from Robert Millet. Uh, down to verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Uh, George F. Richards said, there is in this thing called Mormonism a spirit, a spiritual life. Now this is, we're using the word Mormonism here uh, before we change the name of the, or emphasize more the name of the church. Sorry about that. This is a quote. I'm not uh, using it now, but this is a quote. I fear that many of us have not found it. I fear that we are too mechanical in our prayers, in our worship, and in our service of God. When this spirit is upon us, we feel the truth and see the beauty of the gospel which we have received. Our souls are lightened up by it, and we have the spirit of testimony and knowledge of the truth. It is the spirit of revelation. It is the spirit by which the church and kingdom of God has been set up and by which the work has been conducted up to the present time. We can have this spirit with us and have its manifestation if we will live for it, my brethren and sisters. We must make these tabernacles of ours, which are the temples of God, fit to receive the Holy Ghost, that we may dwell within us, that he may dwell within us, that we may be inspired by him in that which we have to do in life, to see aright, to feel aright, and to act aright, that our administrations in our lives may be acceptable unto God. And so here he's telling us about the, the gifts of the Spirit and how we can have that constant companionship if, we're, if we live worthy for it. And that's our goal. Uh, chapter 2. Down to verse 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. And we know that grace is a gift of God. It's not something that we can earn. In fact, the word grace can be, can be defined as um, receiving something that you don't deserve. Are works, are, are works unimportant then? Doesn't it matter what we do? Of course matters, 
Of course, works matter. Of course, it matters what we do. But the scriptures attest again and again that it is not our works that save us. Our works, our reception of the ordinances of salvation, our acts of goodness and benevolence, our contributions to the work of the kingdom are necessary but insufficient. As Elder McConkie pointed out, our works, no matter how many or how good, are not enough. We are not saved by our works. Some people say that we are saved by the grace of Christ, but exalted by our works. That also is false. Our works evidence our faith in Christ and our desire to follow him and rely upon his atoning grace. But there are simply not enough loaves of bread to bake or home teaching visits to make or meetings to attend to save me from the woes of sin. Such requires the, the mediation of a God. And that's from Robert Miller. I would also recommend to you a, a, a video um, of a talk by um, Brad Wilcox entitled His Grace is Sufficient. It's probably one of the best talks on grace that you'll ever hear. Um, it's about a half an hour or so in, in length, and it's really, really good. It really explains salvation great, that uh, we're trying to practice uh, to become like God, and, and, uh, we, and that's what grace is to do, is to help us through that process. All right. Um, chapter, uh, verse 9, not of works, but any man, that lest any man should boast. In other words, I can't do so many good things that I can boast that I'm being saved because of my works. Uh, it doesn't matter how much good we do, we're still never going to make it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Paul warned these Gentiles who had come out of heathenism to understand that the ultimate source of their salvation was Jesus Christ, not their own efforts or those ordinances, however essential they had received. Self-salvation, like self-righteousness, is an illusion for Jew and Gentile alike. Paul saw eye to eye with James, the issue was never faith or works, but faith with works. More to the point, it was the right faith with the right works. The Father foreordained precisely what those works would be for the what those right works would be for the elect when he chose the elect before the foundation of the world. And that's from Rodney Turner. Paul declares that we were foreordained unto good works. While we may think of foreordination in terms of being foreordained to perform a certain mission, to fulfill a certain calling, or to receive the priesthood, Paul tells us that we were foreordained to be good people who do good things. We were created unto good works, to be kind to others, to be as Christ who went about doing good. All right, down to verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall at partition of partition between us. Now this needs an explanation here of what the wall of partition is that they're talking about. Surrounding the temple, anciently, was a small wall with a sign on it that basically said if you're a Gentile and you cross this wall into uh, the sanctuary or into the holy ground, then you will be killed. Uh, this, this wall was supposed to keep the Gentiles out of the sacred place that only Jews could enter. Uh, the atonement of Christ breaks down the partition both between Jew and Gentile and between man and God. As can be noted in the outline of this letter, Paul is pointing out that the Gentiles who accept the gospel are now brought in and made part of the covenant people. In the great temple of Jerusalem, the temple proper was shielded from Gentile influences. A special barrier was erected, and if a Gentile passed beyond it, he could be put to death. Archaeologists have even found one of the marble blocks on this of this barrier with this inscription. Let no foreigner enter within the screen or enclosure surrounding the sanctuary. Whosoever is taken so doing will be the cause that death overtaketh him. It will be remembered that in this in the accusation of Paul, that Paul had ignored this warning and brought Gentiles before beyond the barrier that led to the riot and his arrest, and that was from Acts chapter twenty one. 
So uh, this, and that last thing I just read was from the Institute Manual. So the, the wall of the temple was very uh, important to the Jews, which kept the Gentiles out. Down to verse 19. Uh, now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Christ had reconciled Jew and Gentile to God and to one another, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These are necessary offices in the true church of Christ. Elder McConkie said, where there are apostles and prophets, there is the church and kingdom of God on earth. And where these are not, the true church and the, and the divine kingdom are not present. How can a church be the Lord's church unless it receives revelation from him? Who can head up the Lord's work on earth if there are no prophets? Who can preach and teach true doctrines without prophetic insight? Who can perform the ordinances of salvation with binding certainty and sealing surety unless they are legal administrators endowed with power from on high? And so we use these uh, scriptures often in our missionary labors. Uh, when we're talking about the foundation of the church being with apostles and prophets. And then also uh, verse 19 that we mentioned about no more strangers is often uh, used in our talks over baptism that uh, when people join the church, then they're no more foreigners or strangers, but are fellow citizens with the church. Uh, continuing verse 20, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Obviously, Jesus is the center of everything and is the chief cornerstone stone that holds up everything. In Israel, on the Temple Mount, there's a giant uh, stone that's probably, well, maybe 40 feet long by 20 feet high and 20 feet wide, uh, which is the chief cornerstone of the Temple. And uh, that's still there today. You can see that. It's quite uh, huge. I wonder how they even got it in, into position there, but it's a large, a large piece of rock. Paul knew that the church was destined to become much more than a human enterprise, however elaborate, clothed in clerical robes. When finally completed, the building and each man and woman in it would be nothing less than a holy temple in which God, through the Holy Ghost, would dwell. It was for this reason that the church had to be built upon the solid foundation of apostles and prophets, who would not only teach correct principles and administer correct ordinances, but who would also safeguard those principles and ordinances against heresy. And then the last verse of chapter 2, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So this building uh, not only is of, of um, offices in the church, but all the members in the church, which are um, working together to make it work. Chapter 3. Uh, in verse 4, he says, Whereby, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You wonder, what is he talking about? What's the mystery? Paul employs the term mystery 20 times in his letters in discussing Christ, the gospel, the resurrection, Israel, the Gentiles, speaking in tongues, iniquity, and godliness. A mystery is a divine secret or unknown truth. Three mysteries are discussed in Ephesians. The first mystery pertains to a process that began in the days of the apostolic church. For the first time since the flood, the non-Israelitish nations, or Gentiles, were to be given the opportunity to receive the gospel and be adopted into immortal Israel. In doing so, they would partake of the unsearchable riches of Christ. This proselyting or proselytizing period is called the times of the Gentiles. And so the mysteries here he's talking about are varied. There's lots of different things he's talking about. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow, fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And so the mysteries were to be made known to everyone that uh, became members of the church that joined that join the true church. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that Christ and God the Father are two distinct persons. 
So here's good evidence of uh, there being two different people. Christ would not bow to himself. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So there's two uh, distinct persons there. Verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so we are children of our Heavenly Father. Uh, in a manifestation to Brigham Young after his death, Joseph Smith told his successor to be sure to instruct the saints to keep the spirit of the Lord, promising that if they would do so, they would find themselves just as they were organized by our Father in heaven before they came into the world. Our Father in heaven organized the human family, but they are all disorganized and in great confusion. He says, how were they in the beginning? Um, he said that he could not describe it, but that there must be yet a perfect chain from Father Adam to his latest posterity. Uh, during an illness, Jedediah Grant visited the spirit world two nights in succession. He reported a perfect order in government that existed there, saying that the righteous gathered together, that there were no wicked spirits among them, and that they were organized in family capacities. To my astonishment, he said, when I looked at families, there was a deficiency in some. There was a lack, for I saw families that would not be permitted to come and dwell together because they had not honored their calling here. That's from Robert Millet in The Life Beyond. Joseph Fielding Smith said, Is there a family in heaven and in earth? Yes, that family is composed of those who go to the temple of the Lord, and there are sealed or married for time and all eternity according to the law of the Lord. Marriage is to be eternal, just as the Lord declares here in the, in the words that I have just read. And when a man and woman go to the house of the Lord and are married for time and for all eternity, they take upon them certain covenants that they will be true and faithful in that union. Children born in that union will be the children of their, that father and mother, not only in mortal life, but in all eternity. And they become members of the family of God in heaven and on earth, as spoken of by Paul. And that family order should never be broken. So in verse 15 again, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. So we have, uh, we, we were a family before we came here and we're trying to get back to that state in the next slide. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Elder Maxwell said, we must deepen our faith until it becomes the real thing. Otherwise, when the heat of the day comes, if we are not, to use Peter and Paul's words, grounded or rooted or established and settled, we will wither under the scorching summer of circumstances. Verse 18, may be able, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And so here he's talking about how important it is to have the love of God in our lives. All right, let's go to chapter four. I knew this would be a long one. That's because uh, there's a lot of material, but like I said, this is to cover two weeks. So you can break this in half if you want or however you want to do it. Just pause it and come back to it later. Uh, chapter four, verse four, verse five. One Lord and one faith. Well, let me back up and do four. In one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one true church. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and you and in you all. And I'm going to read verse 10 because there's a Joseph Smith translation difference here. Who He who descended is the same also who ascended up into heaven to glorify him who reigneth over all heavens, that he might fill all things. And verse 11 is a scripture mastery verse. Uh, it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And so here he's talking about the organization of the church. Um, and we know that evangelists are patriarchs. Uh, 
And then in verse 12, he tells us the purpose for this organization. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Rodney Turner said, in addition to apostles and prophets, Christ provided evangelists or patriarchs, pastors, bishops, and teachers in his church for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or upbuilding of the body of Christ. The word perfecting perfecting implies oneness. A a divided church, much less a fragment in Christianity, can never become perfect. Christ declared, I say unto you, be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. The hallmark of the true church is unity. Uh, Verse 13, how will we need... How long will we need our church leaders? Uh, Verse 13, till we in the unity of the faith all come to the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it sounds like we won't need the church after this life or at least after the resurrection because we will then be perfect. What would happen if we didn't have our church leaders? Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So that's a a benefit there of having the church organization. The authorities, this is from President Kimball, the authorities which the Lord has placed in his church constitute for the people of the church a a harbor, a place of refuge, a a hitching post, as it were. No one in this church will ever go, go far astray who ties himself securely to the church authorities whom the Lord has placed in his church. This church will never go astray. The Quorum of the Twelve will never lead you into bypaths. It never has and never will. There could be individuals who would falter. There will never be a majority of the Council of the Twelve on the wrong side at any time. The Lord has chosen them. He has given them specific responsibilities. And those people who stand close to them will be safe. And conversely, whenever one begins to go his own way in opposition to authority, he is in grave danger. I would not say that those leaders whom the Lord chooses are necessarily the most brilliant, nor the most highly trained, but they are the chosen. And when chosen of the Lord, they are his recognized authority, and the people who stay close to them have safety. And then down to verse 24, And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So in taking on ourselves the gospel of Christ, we're supposed to get rid of the natural man and put ourselves and put upon ourselves the new man or the, the one that's born of God. Practicing Christians, this is Rodney Turner again, practicing Christians are good men and women. However, people can be good in the normative sense of the word without belonging to any religious organization. There are many good men and women who seldom, if ever, darken the doors of a church. However, the goal of the saint is, is not mere goodness, but holiness. And holiness requires not only personal morality, but also those doctrines and ordinances through which the saint is endowed with the holiness of the Godhead. Only those who accept and live the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ can be sanctified, and only the sanctified are heirs of the celestial kingdom. They alone are members of the heavenly church, the church of the firstborn. They alone partake of the fullness of the grace of God. So it's not a matter of just being good, because we have lots of people that are good in the world, but they need to be holy. And the only way to become holy is through the doctrines and ordinances of the gospel. Um, Down to verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So as long as we're keeping the commandments, we can be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and uh, receive our calling and election made sure. Verse 32, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And if we expect to be forgiven, we need to forgive. And so it's, not, it's, it's important for us to be nice and kind and understanding toward one another. 
Chapter 5, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're doing that. Um, uh, continuing verse 2, and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. It's interesting that that phrase there, a sweet-smelling savor, is an Old Testament language, uh, which means Christ. And there's multiple references in the Old Testament about the sacrifices, and then the Lord calls it a sweet-smelling savor. Um, so I won't go into all of those, but there's, a, there's like a dozen or so different verses about that. Uh, down to verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. In other words, as the Lord is, is submitting to his will to the Father, to the Lord, then the wife can submit herself to the husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Can you find in all the Holy Scriptures where the Lord Jesus Christ ever failed his church? And so, husbands, you should be the same. Can you find any scripture that says he was untrue to his people, to his neighbors, friends, or associates? Husbands, you should be likewise. Was he faithful? Husbands, be likewise. Was he true? Husbands, be likewise. Is there anything good and worthy that he did not give? Husbands, do likewise. Then that is what we ask, what, we, what he asks of a husband, every husband. That is the goal. Can you think of a single except, exception in his great life? There should be none in yours. So fathers, husbands, uh, obey Obey the commandments and be as Christ was to the church. That was President Kimball. Verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There is a scripture which says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Your wife is your friend. You should be willing to go even to the extent of giving your life for her if the need should appear. Would you give your life for her? You need to ask yourself, Can I love my wife even as Christ also has loved the church? Can you think of how he loved the church? It's every, it's every breath was important to him. It's every growth. It's every individual was precious to him. He gave to those people all his energy, all his power, all his interest. He gave his life. And what more can one give? That was President Kimball. To put the principle in proper perspective, Paul draws an analogy between the relationship of a priesthood husband to his wife and of Christ to the church. Christ and the husband in Christ constitute the head in their respective callings. For marriage is more than a partnership, it is also a priesthood stewardship. Since every steward is accountable for his stewardship, he must be able to exercise righteous dominion over it. There can be no legitimate responsibility without legitimate authority. Husbands do not derive their authority from their sex, but from Christ. They are the head of their wives because Christ is their head. A man's authority and the right to exercise that authority is in righteousness originates in Christ, not in the man. Consequently, a wife's commitment to her husband imposes a profound obligation on him to be worthy of her commitment. To justify the wife's commitment, Paul commands what I just read in, in verse 25. And so we need to do that. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, and Paul is talking here about another mystery, 
this is a most what he means is this is a most sacred ordinance in keeping with his emphasis in the in the on the mis, on the mysteries or ordinances of the gospel paul indicates that marriage is the great mystery in greek mega mysterion or highest and greatest ordinance Certainly, he did not mean that marriage is a great secret or a mystery that needs a solution. What he means here is that marriage is the highest and holiest ordinance of the gospel. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. For what cause? For the fulfillment of the plan of the Father, that the plan that provides for eternal love and its truest expression, eternal lives. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. In the scriptures, there are only a few passages where the Lord tells us to love something with all our, all our hearts, loving the Lord and loving our wife. All right, chapter six. Let's skip down to verse 10. Um, verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The war in heaven is still going on. It's just moved to earth. Being spiritual enemies, they must be fought with spiritual weapons. And that's what Brother Turner said. Wherefore, take, upon, take unto you the whole armor of God. The armor used in both is both offensive and defensive that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins, or your virtue and chastity. Now the loins is that part of the body between the lower rib and the hip, in which you will recognize are the vital organs which have to do with reproduction. He was saying that that part of the body was one of the most vulnerable. That's President Harold B. Lee. Uh, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace speech in, uh, at BYU, or, yeah, BYU in 1954. Gird about... With truth, truth, the Lord said, is knowledge of things as they are as and things as they were and things as they are to come. What is going to guide us along the path of proper morals or proper choices is still, it will be the knowledge of truth. And having on the breastplate, in other words, over the heart, the heart has always been used to typify our conduct of righteousness, having learned truth, we have a measure by which we can judge between right and wrong, and so our conduct will always be gauged by that thing which we know to be true. Verse 15, and your feet, suggesting the feet as the objectives, the goals of life which we would have guarded by some kind of armor and protected from getting off the wrong foot, in other words, staying on the covenant path, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How fortunate are you if your childhood, if in your childhood, in your home, in your, in your father and mother who were taught uh, let me start over. How fortunate are you if in your childhood, in the home of your father and mother, you were taught the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, the meaning of baptism, and what you gain by, the having, by having the laying out of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Fortunate is the child who has been taught to pray and who has been given these steps to take on through life. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith he shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the adversary or of the wicked, and take the helmet, in other words, our head, our thoughts, of salvation, saved from death and saved from sin, when these two things are missing from the, this earth, and when it has been sanctified and cleansed of its impurity, this shall be the place of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, I can't think of any more powerful weapons than faith, than faith a knowledge of the scriptures in the which are contained the word of God. 
which is the word of God in our day, it is clear that the armor of God is more than just a figure of speech. Okay, down to verse 18. Praying, the final piece of armor is prayer, always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Uh, it's interesting that we have several scriptures we have in the Book of Mormon and also in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about the armor of God. And so since it's been repeated so many times, it's probably important. Uh, okay, probably is not a good word. It, it is important. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, the gospel is true. And here's that was from the Book of Ephesians. Uh, like I said, it was a pretty long one this time. I'm hoping that uh, this was helpful in your study of the New Testament this come follow me season and uh, pray for your guidance and doing the things that the Lord would have you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you like this podcast, share it or whatever. Thanks. Bye.